Welcome to this special midweek edition of the Southcrest Live podcast featuring the teaching of Dr. David Wilson. If this is your first time to listen, be sure to connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. And thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this message from our Wednesday night series. I'm glad to see you tonight. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1. We are going to walk verse by verse. We'll see how many of you endure to the end. Usually by the spring, I've got this crowd whittled down to about 50. (laughs) It always starts out good. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard about a student who was looking for an easy class at a university. And like all of us, when we were going to school, we needed some easy classes, some electives, some that we didn't have to work too hard on. So he saw a class in introductory ornithology. He liked the sound of it. He didn't know what it was, but he liked the sound of it. So he figured it would impress his parents. He also had heard that this particular class professor was pretty old and pretty nice. And most everyone at least got a C and he gave a lot of A's and B's. So he signed up for introductory ornithology. Well, after he registered, just before he went to his first class, he learned that the course was about birds, in case some of you don't know what ornithology is. And he also learned that the professor who had been teaching it for years had retired and now was a brand new, fresh out of PhD professor who was just waiting to demonstrate his brilliance to the students. Did you ever have one of those kind of professors? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was an incredible difficult, incredibly difficult course. And on the final exam, the student came in there, and up on the platform were 25 pair of bird legs from the knees down. <laughs> and the students were told, you're going to identify every one of those birds and where they're from Well, this young man had had it. He got up. He walked up to that professor, and he stormed out. He threw that test down on on the professor's desk. He said, I quit this class. This is ridiculous. This is absurd, and so forth. And he started out, and the professor said, young man, what is your name? He turned around, pulled his pants legs up, and said, you tell me. There are a lot of people who do not know just who they are in Jesus. The United Press International back in 1970 carried this story. For several years, there was a 14-inch statue used as a doorstop in the house 
of Leo Carey of Green Township, Ohio. And after Mr. Carey died, his estate was being appraised. Someone recognized that doorstop as a replica by Rodin of his famous sculpture, The Thinker, which was a masterpiece in the 19th century. And when the art dealers evaluated the find, they estimated the value of this miniature Rodin doorstop at $16,000. He didn't know what he had. A lot of believers don't know what they have. Several years ago, the Los Angeles Times reported the story of an elderly man and his wife who were found dead in their apartment. No wounds were found, no foul play. Autopsies revealed that both of them had died of severe malnutrition. Investigations found, though, as they looked through their apartment, they found a sack, paper sacks in the closet had $40,000 in cash in it, and yet they died of starvation. Many years, some, some of you may have heard the name Hetty Green, as she died back in 1916, but she was known for many years as America's greatest miser. She, when she died in 1916, her estate was worth $100 million. Now, you think about that in 1916. That really was. That was almost as much as some of you make. <laughs> but she was so miserly. She had all this money. She was so miserly that she ate cold oatmeal in order to save the expense of heating the water. And when her son had a severe leg injury, she took so long trying to find a free clinic, a free clinic to treat his leg. By the time she found one, his leg had become infected and had to be amputated. It's been said that she hastened her own death by bringing on a fit of apoplexy while arguing the merits of skim milk because it was cheaper than whole milk. Many Christians do not know what they have. They, don't know that they do not realize who they are. They do not know what they have. The book of Ephesians was written to Christians who might be prone to treat their spiritual resources like that. I mean, some of you have been Christians for so long, you probably have forgotten who you are, and you probably have forgotten what you have. Ephesians have been given the title many times of the believer's bank or the Christian's checkbook or the treasure house of the Bible. Some have even called it the Mount Everest of the New Testament. It speaks of the Christian's great riches. It speaks of our inheritance. It speaks of our fullness in Christ. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, many banks would not allow their uh, would allow people to not to, they wouldn't allow them to draw more than 10% of their wealth at one time because the bank didn't have that much cash uh, in there. Well, God's heavenly bank doesn't have any limitations on it. And you need to understand that the Lord's heavenly resources are more than adequate to cover all of our past debts. And I'm not talking about financial debts. I'm talking about our sin debt. It covers all our liabilities and covers all our future needs. So the first thing I want to share with you, I think he's already put up there, the significance of Ephesians. Paul's first trip to Ephesus was really on his way to Antioch in Syria. He, when, when he arrived in Ephesus, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, 
And he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time with them there, he said, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 18, he said, I will come back if God wills for it to happen, if, if it's God's will. Well, after traveling to Antioch, Paul visited the churches there and he, er, that he had earlier established in Galatia and Phrygia on his way back to Ephesus. But on his return, he stayed in Ephesus two and a half years and really made it sort of a, a base. Two and a half to three years, he was a base for his missionary activities. And several events from Paul's stay in Ephesus are recorded in Acts chapter 19, if you want to read about it and see what's going on. Well, for one thing, his preaching caused a riot. You can read it in Acts 19 because people began to respond to Jesus and when they began to respond to Jesus, they quit buying all the little silver idols. Now, there was a huge pagan temple in Ephesus. Some of us got to go to Ephesus earlier in the summer and got to see some of the ruins there. And it's pretty amazing what is left and how fabulous it was. But there was a, a huge temple of the Greek god, goddess Artemis. It was really called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and part of the economy of Ephesus was selling idols, especially uh, the silver idols. And the gospel began to affect the economy because they quit buying them. When you come to Jesus, you don't need an idol. And, and, and so it caused a riot preaching there. You can read about it. And Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than any other place on his missionary journey. So it's not surprising that once he was in prison that he was concerned about the believers there. So he sits down and he writes a letter that some people can call the basic training manual for believers because he wants them to grow. And it's not just for Ephesus, but for the entire region. Now, I want to tell you, it's still a very rich letter today. I mean, there's so much in this. Ephesians is a book about how to grow as a Christian. What do you do after you believed? Beyond the belief in Jesus, what do you do? You begin to grow. And how to increase your intimacy with God. I heard somebody tell me one time that a lot of Christians are like a wasp. And my first thought was, yeah, they sting a lot of people, but that's not what he said. I didn't realize this, but when a wasp first comes out of its little egg or pouch or whatever it is in that nest, it's larger at that time than any other time in its life. That's just the opposite of us. In fact, it continually shrinks the older it gets until it dies. Well, a lot of people are first born into the kingdom of God. When they're first saved, they're so excited. It seems they're closer to God at that moment than any other time in their life. And they, they just keep shrinking the older they get. And part of it's because they don't feed on the word of God. Part of it's they're not taught the truth. But in this letter, Paul speaks of the riches of God's grace in verse 7. He talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ in chapter 3, verse 18. He talks about the riches of his glory in chapter 3, verse 16. 
And then he calls believers to, in, verse chap- in chapter 4, verse 13, to attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature person, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In chapter 5, he tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Chapter 3, to be filled up to the, all the fullness of God. You need to understand who you are and what you have has nothing to do with the material things you have. Roy Wettstein purchased a stone from an amateur collector at an Arizona mineral show. He paid $10,000 for it. Now, this was in Newsweek magazine back in 1986. At that time, they valued it. They didn't. He paid $10,000 for it and then had it um, appraised or looked at by some gemologist guys, it was worth $2.28 million. The world's largest sapphire. The man who sold it for $10,000 didn't know what he had, did he? This book, the word riches, is used five times. The word grace, it's used 12 times. Glory is used eight times. Fullness or filled up or fills six times. The key phrase in Christ or in him 15 times. So in Christ, he's the source. He's the sphere, the guarantee of every spiritual blessing and all the spiritual riches and those who are in him have access to all he has. We are who we are because we are in Christ Jesus. Our worth is because of Christ Jesus. There was an old lady by the name known to all her neighbors as Garbage Mary. She lived in a small town in Florida. Every day she'd be seen dressed in her rags, walking the street, scavenging through garbage cans for food, which she hoarded in her car or in her tiny two-room apartment. She was a recluse with no friends, and she scrounged cigarettes and ice cubes from anyone who was available. It was logical to believe that she was an old woman who was rapidly losing her mind and living on the verge of destitution. But when some court officials went to her apartment to collect a few of her personal effects, actually they, they picked her up and put her in a psychiatric institution. Then they went to her apartment to collect a few of her personal effects. They were amazed to discover there was money everywhere. Scattered through her apartment and her car were bank books, stock securities, oil drilling rights, real estate documents, and cash, which indicated that Garbage Mary was worth more than a million dollars. These documents also indicated that she was not an old woman. She was 48 years old, who was a college graduate who had inherited a great deal of money when her father died in 1974. And further investigation revealed that she'd experienced two unhappy marriages and her brother felt that the resulting trauma may have caused her to have some mental problems. Her psychiatrist conjectured that living alone, she had fallen into a mental rut because she had nothing to excite her. Whatever the reason, the tragedy remains. Here's a woman abounding in physical resources, but she needed to go through the garbage foraging 
and living in rags while her resources were unused and neglected. Our riches and our spiritual riches are in Christ Jesus. Let me read a few of them quickly. They're in Christ's grace in chapter 1, verse 2. They're in his peace. They're in his will, chapter 1, verse 5. They're in his intention. They're in his purpose, his glory, his calling, his inheritance, his power, his love, his workmanship, his spirit, his gifts, his sacrifice, his strength, and his armor. All of that's in here. That's where the riches are. And because we're in Christ, we are in his body, the church. You can divide this book easily. Six chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, chapters 4, 5, and 6. 1, 2, and 3 deal with doctrine. 4, 5, and 6 deal with our duty. 1, 2, and 3 deal with our wealth. 4, 5, and 6 deal with our walk in the Lord. The first half speaks of our position. second half speaks of our practice. First half deals with our belief. The second half deals with our behavior. First half is theological. The second half is practical. Did you know that if you don't get your theology right, the practice won't be right? If you don't get your doctrine straight, then your duty won't be right. If you don't get your belief right, your behavior won't be right. So why is it when we say the word doctrine, everybody takes a deep breath going, oh, no. I'll tell you, until you know who you are and what you have, you won't live like that. You'll go foraging through the garbage, spiritual garbage, not knowing what you already have in the Lord. So as Christians, we've been blessed beyond our belief in Jesus. Now, that's the significance of Ephesians. You need to understand it's worth looking at. The second thing I want you to notice are the saints who received the blessing. He says, Paul, an apostle, Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints. Let's first talk about the author, Paul. Now, all the letters during this time, or around this time when Paul was writing, were basically the same. They started with the name of the person who was writing, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. We have to read a letter and then get to the end to see who it's from, or we have to look at the very end to see who it's from. Well, they just started out, this is Paul. And it's interesting that Paul follows that pattern, and he doesn't say Father Paul or Apostle Paul or the Elder Paul. He doesn't even say Pastor Paul. He just says Paul. Paul was his Roman name. And when he's dealing with the Gentiles, we find out that Paul, was being the apostle to the Gentiles, and by the way, that's you and me, we're the Gentiles, we're not Jewish. Whenever he was speaking as the apostle to the Gentiles, he just used his Gentile name, Paul. Paul, whose original name was what? Saul. And Saul was probably, well, we know that Saul... Let me back up. Paul, who's originally Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. The most famous Benjaminite was Saul the king, the first king of Israel. So he was probably named after the first king 
of the tribe of Benjamin. He was well-educated. He was a learned man. He was educated in what we might call the humanities, but his most extensive training was in the rabbinic studies under the famous Gamaliel. You can read about this in Acts 22. He became an outstanding rabbi in his own right. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, folks, we're talking the ruling Jewish council at Jerusalem. He was also probably the most ardent anti-Christian leader in Judaism. He hated Christians. He hated them all. He, he, you can read about it in Acts 22. He passionately hated the followers of Jesus Christ, and he was on his way to arrest some more in Damascus. When Jesus, when the Lord miraculously and dramatically stopped him in his tracks in Acts chapter 9, Paul never got over the grace that the Lord extended to him because you know why? Paul always felt like the Lord could have just killed him right there on the spot. But, but the Lord Jesus extended grace to the one who was persecuting the followers of Jesus. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? And after spending three years in the desert of the Nabataean Arabia, Paul jointly pastored a church in Antioch of Syria with Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manaean, Acts 13, 1. During this earlier ministry, of Saul became known as Paul, Acts 13, 9. The new man took on a new name. He was no longer Saul. He was now Paul. And from Antioch, the Holy Spirit sent him out with Barnabas to begin the greatest missionary journey that the world's ever known. And we're a result of that. We're part of that. Well, you know what Paul means? You know what the name Paul means? Small or humble. Now, here was a lion that ravaged and breathed out murderings and cursings and threatenings against the church of Jesus, the Pharisee that was instrumental in the murder of Stephen. That lion was brought down to size, made small by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who arrested Christians on the road to Damascus was arrested by the Son of God and converted on the road to Damascus. God cut him down to size. But I don't want to tell you, just because he was small, God used him. God's bigness was used through his smallness. That's, that's probably pitiful English. That's why he said, when I am weak, he is strong. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. Some of you may be going through a weakness today. You may be going through some struggles. I want to tell you something. Paul would say his grace is sufficient for you. Paul is the author, but what is his authority? He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he does mention that he is, but he didn't say, I'm Apostle Paul, I'm Elder Paul. An apostle of Jesus Christ, that's not his title. Now, when you and I think of the apostles, we think of Peter, James, John. But, but here, it is his role. Because the word means to be sent, the sent one, Paul, the sent one of Jesus Christ, to be sent out. 
Then the New Testament is used as an official title of the men of God uniquely chosen to be used by the Lord. And you know what? God used him to write most of the New Testament that we have. The majority of it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul did not teach or write by his own authority. He said, I am the sent one of Jesus Christ by the will of God. God is the one who put me on this. God is the one who sent me. God is the one who is telling me what to do. You know, God has a will for you. Did you know that? Sometimes God wills you to do something that you have no idea he wanted you to do in the first place. But now I want you to notice the audience. Somewhere between 60 and 62, Paul wrote this letter from prison. There are four prison epistles. Epistles. You know what an epistle is? It's a letter. It's not the wife of an apostle. (laughs) Like one little boy said. They're letters. They were written from prison. He was in prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon are the four prison epistles. Paul was in prison at the time they were written. And, and so he's writing to the believers who are at Ephesus. Now I want to tell you something. That phrase, who are in Ephesus, is not in some of the earlier manuscripts. That mean there's a mistake in the Bible. It just means some of the, the earlier manuscripts, you don't find that phrase to the saints who are in Ephesus. Which, and, and also, when you read the book of Ephesians, and he's, he was there two and a half to three years, he didn't call anybody by name. He doesn't greet anybody by name. There are no personal references. So it was probably a letter that was sent to the churches, but it came to Ephesus first, and then it was supposed to be sent to the other churches. Probably picked up the name. It doesn't really change anything, but it is interesting to note that really this letter is written to all believers. It's one of the few letters in which Paul deals extensively with the church around the world. I have to be careful when I say universal church. What I mean by that is all of the believers around the world. It doesn't mean everybody's saved. It means all the Christians everywhere. So he's, he's concerned about all the churches. It's labeled to the Ephesians, but it was probably sent to a lot of the other places too because you got to remember he's in prison. Now, let's talk about this audience. First of all, it says they are saints. They are set apart. I'm writing to this letter to those who are set apart. It says, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Song came out of New Orleans many years ago. Well, when the saints go marching in, I want to be in that number. I want to tell you something. Did you know that if you are born again, you've accepted Jesus, you're in that number? You're a saint. You are. There's only two kinds of people, the saints and the ain'ts. You either know Jesus or you don't. Now, 
we, we got a lot of confusion today about the saints because of the practice and the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, which determined several hundred years ago that a person could achieve sainthood if they had been dead over a hundred years and if they were still venerated, especially if they were a martyr, and if they had performed at least two miracles. Then the Roman Catholic Church could officially bestow sainthood upon them. That's why sometimes you might see in your Bible where it says St. Matthew, St. Luke, St. Mark. A lot of people wear St. Christopher medals around their neck because throughout the history of the Roman Catholic Church has said we could call these dead Christians saints. The only problem with that is it's not biblical. It's just not the, the, the saints, you don't have to die to be a saint. You're a saint. So when you leave tonight, be sure and greet each other with saint so-and-so. Hey. <laughs> the word saints means set apart ones. Holy. Every Christian is a saint. Because they have been set apart through Jesus Christ. They've been made holy through the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been placed in their account. We read about this in Romans and in 1 Corinthians and Philippians. When a person acts in faith to receive Christ, God acts in grace to give that person Christ's own righteousness. You hear me say it time and time again. When you place your faith in Christ, repenting of your sin, God imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus. He does that because of his grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. He gives it to you. Now, I want to tell you something. Let's, let me use this illustration. If I held up a $100 bill, which I don't have right here, <clears throat> And I held it up here, and I said, how many of you would like to have this? Would any of you raise your hand? Yeah. Yeah. What if I crumpled it all up? I mean, wadded it up where it's as wrinkled as you can imagine. And then I said, anybody still want it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, what if I put it down on the ground? I stomped on it. I got it all dirty and messed up. As you can imagine, I picked it up, and I said, do you still want it? Because it's still worth $100, isn't it? Sometimes you may feel like you're worthless. You may feel that you have let God down so badly that by the decisions you've made or the circumstances that have come your way, you may feel like that you are dirty, that you have messed up, you're crumpled, you're creased, you're I want to tell you something. No matter what happens to you, you're still priceless in the eyes of God because he gave you his grace and his forgiveness. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, you can't do anything to make God love you more than he does right now. And if you're in Christ, you can't do anything to make God accept you more than he's already accepted you. Do you realize who you are? I know what you're thinking. 
Yeah, but if everybody knew what I thought this week or what I had done this week, I don't believe God believes that about me. But folks, you didn't save yourself. (laughs) And you don't keep yourself saved. Only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that. We're going to start Sunday talking about what do you say when you pray? The very first thing we talk about is him being our father. And when you get a grasp on that, it changes the way you even think about praying. From God's side, believers are those whom he has made holy, which is the meaning of saints. From man's side, believers are those who are faithful, those who've trusted in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's why it says to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So we see the saints, but notice that I like that word steadfast and faithful means they were people who had put their trust in Jesus as Messiah and Savior in Christ Jesus. That not only suggests that Jesus is the object of our faith, but it also means they have a relationship with him. In the third century, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, wrote to his friend Donatus, and I'm going to quote it. He says, it is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the great secret of life. They have found a joy and wisdom which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. You see, you're set apart Now, not only are you set apart, but you're steadfast. You're faithful in Christ Jesus. Steadfast, please. To be faithful in him. Now, number three, the source for the blessings received. How do you get these blessings? You don't earn them. Can't buy them. You can't inherit them. You know, a lot of people think they can. They, you'd be amazed how many people are working their way. They think they are working their way to God. Notice two things here. First of all, the gift of grace. Grace to you and peace from God. Now, this is a common greeting among Christians in the early church. Grace. Grace to you. Charis. It's God's kindness toward those who are undeserving of his favor, but have placed their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means. To greet a Christian brother or sister in this way is much more than a wish for their general well-being. It's an acknowledgement of the divine grace in which we stand and which has made us mutual members of Christ's body. You're sitting among grace people. 
All of us in here have been given grace. Amen? It, listen to what Romans 5.15, For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, capital M, man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. What's amazing is how many people around us are missing the grace of God. Amazon River. I hope one day to see the Amazon River. It's a lot bigger than the Brazos River. It's the largest river in the world. The mouth of the Amazon River is 90 miles across. There's enough water to exceed the combined flow of the, the Yanzees, the Mississippi, and the Nile all together. So much water comes from the Amazon that they can detect the Amazon currents 200 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean. One irony of ancient navigation is that sailors in ancient times many times didn't have enough water. And caught in a windless water in the South Atlantic, they were adrift, helpless, dying of thirst. Sometimes other ships from South America who knew the area would come alongside and call out, what's your problem? And they would call out, can you spare some water? Our sailors are dying of thirst. And from the ship, they would say, just lower your buckets. You're in the mouth of the mighty Amazon River. Here they're out on the South Atlantic thinking they're dying of thirst and there's fresh water all around them to save their life. And you know the irony and the tragedy around us today is that God, the fountain of living water, is right here and people do not draw life from him. We sing this old hymn, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide, and that's not Alabama, by the way. Brighter than snow you may be today, the crimson blood of Jesus. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. You see the gift of grace, but also notice the gain of peace. Now, this word peace, irene, is equivalent to shalom in the Hebrew. The word shalom means the absence of everything that is unpleasant and the presence of everything that makes life worthwhile and pleasant. Here, it signifies spiritual prosperity and completeness. Paul is using the word that says grace to you and spiritual completion and prosperity. But did you notice the order of it? You don't have peace and grace. It's always grace and then peace. 
This kind of peace does not depend on our outward circumstances. In the Old Testament, the sin offering was always preceded, it always preceded the peace offering. And in the New Testament, the order is the same. You find grace, you find God's peace. But you don't find peace apart from God's grace. You just don't. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, trust, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way to have it. That's why so many religious people are so miserable because they don't have the grace of God and salvation. They're still trying to earn it. Colossians 1.20 tells us that Christ having made peace through the blood of his blood on the cross has reconciled all things unto himself. We have peace with God. We don't have to be afraid anymore because of God's grace. Through Jesus Christ, he paid it all. Jesus even said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. I don't know about y'all, but I can't find peace in the world very much. Every now and then I can find a little quiet. But the world doesn't have any peace to offer. It just doesn't. It doesn't last. It may seem okay for a little while, but it just doesn't last. Because it doesn't fill the void that mankind has. They just keep looking for it. So many people believe if we just had different leadership in our nation, there'd be peace. Are people really that dumb? You're not ever going to have peace without Jesus. You're just not. Y'all know that. I, I know you know that. But, but I want you to remember who you are. You are a believer. You are a saint. You won't forget that I said you're either a saint or you ain't. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of who we are. What a testimony. <laughs> if you could save Saul, you could save anybody. And by your grace, he always thought about you never did, that you could have just struck him dead, but you didn't. And, Lord, I guess all of us could feel that way because we don't deserve salvation but you've granted it to us through Jesus and thank you for the peace that comes even when our circumstances aren't the best even when we make bad decisions even when we make mistakes we still battle the sin and yet our value 
is found in you because you have redeemed us. You have saved us. So we pray that people today will realize, at least the folks in this room will realize how much you love them and how important you are. They are to you and you are to them. Help us to remember who we are. We're just sinners saved by grace and given peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name you've given us the privilege to come to you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Southcrest Wednesday Night Series featuring Senior Pastor David Wilson. Remember, you can also live stream our Sunday and Wednesday services. Go to southcrestlive.tv for more details or to southcrest.org to learn more about Southcrest Baptist Church. And thanks for listening. 